Welcome everyone to another episode of Poem Peeps. We are extremely excited to have our second Poem Peeps in the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly collaboration. Today we are bringing you the first episode of our COPD series and are joined by two amazing obstructive lung disease experts. But before we introduce our guests, I want to check in with the other half of Poem Peeps. Firth, how's it going? Monty, I'm doing great. This is like my treat of the week, always getting to record these episodes and to learn some things. I, I know our listeners encounter COPD all the time, inpatient and outpatient throughout their training. Uh, this is a, a diagnosis that a lot of patients unfortunately have and that we're all dealing with. So learning the foundations of COPD classification and management from these experts is going to be incredible for me and for everyone listening, I hope. Absolutely, Firth. I look forward to a great discussion today, and let's get started with introducing our guest. Great. So first, we have Dr. Bob Weiss. Bob is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and he served as the medical director of the Pulmonary Function Lab at Johns Hopkins Asthma and Allergy Center. He is a leader in the care of patients with obstructive lung disease, and his research focus has been conducting multi-center clinical trials in airways disease, and he's also a master physiologist. He's also been involved in various capacities with ATS uh, throughout his career, and he received the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly Lifetime Achievement Award in COPD. Welcome to Palm Peeps, Bob. Thanks so much. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Of course. We're glad to have you on, Bob. And I still remember my first year as a clinical fellow early in July when you taught us how to interpret PFT. So I still remember some of your pearls from that. So next, we'd like to introduce Dr. Wasim Labaki. Wasim is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care, as well as the medical director of the Lung Volume Reduction Surgery Program at the University of Michigan. Wasim's clinical and research interests span the history, the epidemiology, as well as the role of biomarkers and metabolomics in COPD. Wasim was a recipient of the Early Career Investigator Award in COPD from the ATS in 2019 and is currently on the program committee of the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly. It's a pleasure to have you on today, Wasim. Yeah, Christina and Dave, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here and looking forward to discussing COPD. Great. Us too. And before we dive in, just as our standard disclaimer, this podcast is not to be meant to be used for specific medical advice, and our views today are not reflected of our respective employers. We have some mini cases, and all the data we'll present is HIPAA compliant with details changed to protect everybody's privacy. Thanks, Dave. I'm so excited for our discussion with Bob and Wasim, and I know we have so many questions for them. But before we start the discussion, I wanted to present a common patient scenario so listeners can go back to it during the discussion and kind of have a framework in their mind as we're talking through some of the questions. We have a 60-year-old woman with a history of active tobacco use as well as hypertension who was diagnosed with COPD three years ago. Her post-bronchodilator FEV1 to FEC ratio is 0.55 and her FEV1% predicted is 58%. She describes having a chronic cough and gets short of breath when walking uphill, um, which she primarily notices when she's walking to catch her metro stop to work. Her COPD assessment test, or CAT score, is 9. She's been hospitalized once in the last year for treatment of an acute COPD exacerbation. She is not currently on maintenance therapies, but uses a rescue inhaler as needed. So before we discuss the severity of her disease and approaches to management with SEAM, can you briefly describe for our listeners today how you define COPD? And are there any common guidelines that you refer to? 
Yeah, so I uh, refer to uh, the GOLD uh, 2022 guidelines, and uh, GOLD stands for the uh, Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, and it is a uh, international panel of experts that uh, meet uh, on a regular basis. And uh, uh, this this panel reviews uh, the literature on a, an ongoing basis to uh, issue these guidelines on the prevention and uh, management of uh, COPD. Now, Gold uh, uh, recommends to define COPD using three criteria. You must have these three criteria the presence of symptoms, the presence of risk factors, and the presence of airflow obstruction. So let's go through them uh, one by one. So as far as symptoms go, these are, you know, um, general respiratory symptoms, typically shortness of breath, cough, mucus production in patients, you know, with COPD. And we'll talk more about symptoms later on, but it's very important to know how to elicit symptoms from patients when asking questions during the history part. Because if you're to, to just ask someone if they are short of breath, you know, uh, some patients with COPD may say that they are not short of breath. This is because consciously or unconsciously, they would limit their physical activity to avoid the uncomfortable feeling of shortness of breath. Uh, rather, going with open-ended questions such as, you know, how far can you walk before uh, you get short of breath? Or how many flights of stairs can you go up? Or uh, what uh, are some activities in your daily life that you are not able to do because of your shortness of breath? You may get a better sense of, uh, uh, one, whether they have symptoms, and two, how severe their, their symptoms are. And like I said, in addition to shortness of breath, you know, it's very important to ask about other respiratory symptoms, specifically cough and mucus production, which uh, are common in patients with COPD. Now for the number two criterion, which is uh, the presence of risk factors. So smoking is the most common risk factor, you know, for COPD. That being said, you know, it is not the only risk factors. And uh, many patients who uh, never smoked uh, uh, can develop COPD. And it is estimated that up to 20% of uh, COPD is not related to smoking. So what are some of these risk factors? For example, um, occupational exposures, right? Like exposures to dust, fumes, gases, chemicals in the work workplace, especially when significant and especially when uh, prolonged over years, you know, can result in airflow obstruction and COPD. Another uh, risk factor uh, would be exposure to uh, biomass fuel from uh, cooking and heating. For example, in many uh, developing countries and in some areas of developed countries, people rely on wood and coal for uh, cooking and heating. And when used in the confined environment of the house, you know, uh, this uh, uh, heating generates uh, fumes that concentrate, you know, in the in internal space and eventually cause injury to the airways and the lungs uh, over, over years. And uh, also things like recurrent respiratory infections in childhood or uncontrolled asthma in childhood or early adulthood can lead to COPD. So that th these are all important factors to keep in mind. And for the number three uh, criterion to diagnose COPD, airflow obstruction, it is um, defined as a post-bronchodilator. Again, post-bronchodilator, FEV1 over FVC, less than 0.7 as an indication of a fixed uh, airflow obstruction. So using these three criteria, uh, which are, uh, you know, uh, relatively simple, one can diagnose COPD and you need to meet all three criteria. Thanks so much, Racine. That was a great review. And I really always love those criteria because I feel like they hone in on a disease process so well. You know, like there's this epidemiology or the pathophysiology of the risk factors and then the symptoms, this clinical correlation, and then some objective data. And so I just love it's a simple system that really captures it well.
so now that we have a broad definition of CBD, we have a couple more questions for both of you. So Bob, we were ju- we just heard that in terms of the criteria for diagnosis, we're looking at post-bronchodilator obstruction. Um, but I'm curious if you can talk to us about how we further use the obstruction and PFTs to help characterize the severity of lung function impairment. I know that we're often looking at FEV1 after we've diagnosed that they do have some obstruction there. Sure, that's a good question. The important thing to understand is that the ratio which uh, we use to diagnose airflow obstruction, meaning that it takes too long to blow the gas out of the lung, is not very well correlated with the symptoms and uh, mortality from COPD. That is much better correlated with the level of FEV1, either the absolute level or the percent of predicted. So after one makes a diagnosis of COPD, the next thing is to uh, grade the severity of the disease. And that's based on the FEV1% of predicted. Um, People who have an FEV1% of predicted less than 50% uh, are considered to have severe COPD and less than 30% of predicted are um, graded to have very severe uh, COPD. Between 50 and 80 percent, that's considered moderate. That's like our patient today. And above 80 percent is considered to be mild uh, uh, COPD. Uh, so that's useful both in determining the treatment, the prognosis, and what the uh, approach to the patient is going to be overall. That's great. And and I want to stick with the PFTs for a little bit because it's such an important part of what we do in our diagnosis. And I know you're an expert, so I like to sort of pick your brain. Uh, I think different labs are using uh, different interpretation systems now. I know there's some standards out there too. Um, the old, just a, a raw value of 0.7 uh, being used less commonly and some people now looking at the lower limit of normal or using confidence intervals. And I was wondering if you could just comment on that and how it plays a role in diagnosis diagnosing patients with obstruction? Yeah, this has been a long-standing controversy uh, amongst uh, pulmonologists. Uh, and I think it's become so uh, such a uh, controversy because it's so unimportant in the long run. It turns out that uh, an average uh, lower limit of normal for, say, a middle-aged man is very close to 07 And that's when the disease presents. And so it's a very simple uh, way of uh, determining whether there's airflow obstruction or not. uh, It's it's very easy to remember that, okay? Uh, And it does actually correspond very well throughout a long uh, age span with symptoms and outcomes. In fact, uh, a recent study looking for a sort of the ideal threshold, found that it was about 71% uh, that uh, we should use. So uh, although that 0.7 sounds simple, we've used it for a long time, it is important. It's also important to understand that virtually every clinical trial of any drug that's been approved by the FDA has used that as the threshold, not the lower limit of normal. Now, the argument for the lower limit of normal, which cuts off the lowest fifth percentile of a population, um, uh, is that as we age, we tend to lose the FEV1-FVC ratio. It gets lower. 
so that an 80 or an 85-year-old individual could have an FEV1, FVC ratio of 0.7 and still be well within the normal population for that age. The real debate is whether that aging process, which induces airflow limitation, is physiologic or where, whether it's pathologic. But for the practitioner, I believe carrying around the number of 70% is so much easier than carrying around a, a computer to calculate the lower limit of normal that it's, it's just uh, what we should be doing. Yeah, that, that's great. And it's also builds on Wasim's point that, you know, the diagnosis is not just one number, you know, it requires three different things to do it. So it's not as if it's a, a becomes a, a holy grail of the diagnosis. So my, my final sort of PFT question, or we can always dive back into, uh, I, there's more to PFTs than spirometry, of course. And I'm curious what values on lung volumes and uh, gas transfer you think are the most important for our patients that we know have COPD, in addition to grading the severity of their obstruction. Yeah. So um, I think that every patient who is newly diagnosed with COPD deserves to have a complete set of pulmonary function tests at the outset. And this would include not only spirometry before and after a bronchodilator, but also lung volumes and a diffusing capacity. The lung volumes can be done either with a gas dilution method like helium or by body plethysmography, because both of those will give an idea of whether there's hyperinflation of the lung, namely an elevated total lung capacity, which is a hallmark of emphysema, or whether there's air trapping, gas trapping, which is an elevated residual volume, which is the hallmark of small airways disease. The other important thing, and perhaps the most important reason to do lung volumes, is to investigate for other lung diseases that might cause a combined restrictive and obstructive defect, such as can occur commonly with sarcoid, um, can occur with combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema, uh, with obesity and the like. So the lung volumes are important. The diffusing capacity uh, is important for several reasons. First of all, a low diffusing capacity coupled with hyperinflation uh, is a very uh, excellent indicator uh, that emphysema is the culprit uh, and the cause of the airflow obstruction. The diffusing capacity tends to be more normal in patients who have mainly airway disease like chronic bronchitis. And in asthma, it's the diffusing capacity is even elevated. So it's a great way to tell the difference uh, between asthma and COPD. The other um, utility of the diffusing capacity is that it can tell you a lot about whether a patient is likely to need oxygen or whether they desaturate with exercise. When the diffusing capacity is below 50% of predicted or so, about half those patients will desaturate when they exert themselves. And when it's above 60%, then it's not necessary to 
to um, check the patient for exercise desaturation unless they uh, have some uh, intercurrent uh, illness. So I like to get lung volumes and diffusing capacity along with spirometry in a newly diagnosed patient. I don't know that I've ever had a, a short speech about lung volumes and DLCO with more pearls than the one that you just gave me. That was un- unbelievable. That was great. <laughs> totally agree, for Thank you so much uh, for that, Bob. And going back to our patient, I think we can further characterize her. Her having an FEV1% predicted of 58%, as you mentioned, Bob, as her having moderate lung function impairment, uh, which would be consistent with the gold stage two. She did have a full set of PFTs, uh, but did not have any evidence of hyperinflation or air trapping, and her DLCO was 59% predicted, so compatible with a moderate gas transfer defect. I want to go back to you, Wasim. If you're seeing this patient for the first time clinic, what other diagnostic tests would you consider obtaining for her? To, to, to build up on what uh, Bob just said, you know, for example, you consider, should I get imaging? In this patient, for example, uh, given that she does not have evidence of hyperinflation or air trapping, you know, and her DLCO is decreased, but not significantly decreased as, as it stands at 59% of predicted, I would not necessarily consider uh, imaging to look for um, emphysema because uh, extent of uh, any emphysema she may have would be um, minimal to mild at most. However, you could, uh, as far as imaging goes, you could see if she's a candidate for uh, lung cancer screening. If she meets criteria uh, for lung uh, cancer screening, and in that case, you would get a uh, low-dose chest CT after discussing the risks and benefits of uh, screening with this patient. In terms of additional workup, things uh, I think about is uh, a six-minute walk test, which I would not do in this patient given her um, the LCO above 50% predicted. Uh, another thing uh, that one can look at is also the, the oximetry at rest that we f- frequently collect, you know, in the outpatient setting, just seeing uh, what uh, what her uh, oxygen saturation is, uh, you know, at rest just when collected in the clinic. I mean, if it is in the low 90s, let's say, or high 80s at rest, then uh, she's likely to uh, experience desaturation with exertion, in which case, you know, a six-minute walk uh, test uh, uh, would be indicated. Um, um, but not, not, in, not in her case. Something else I would think about is obtaining uh, an EVG in uh, patients with uh, uh, more severe COPD. I mean, typically, if the FEV1 is less than 50% uh, predicted. And what I would be looking at is uh, seeing if there's evidence of chronic hypercarbic re- respiratory failure, uh, which uh, can happen in later stages of COPD. This does not uh, uh, apply to this patient per se, but something to th- think about. A couple of things I would would get is an alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, deficiency uh, phenotype and level. In fact, the World Health Organization and the Alpha-1 Foundation recommend, you know, obtaining an alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, uh, level and phenotype on all patients with COPD, even though the patients may not be uh, your, your you know, typical patients with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, meaning someone in their 40s who has panlobular emphysema and the bases. Because sometimes the diagnosis is missed and can be diagnosed later in life, let's say when someone is in their 60s. And also, um, uh, even though the classic uh, uh, 
imaging presentation is panlobular emphysema in the basis this is not always the case, you know, because uh, someone can have uh, panlobular emphysema in the basis because of their alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but also have centrilobular emphysema in the APCs because of some smoking history. And then when you look at the CAT scan, it, it would look more like diffuse emphysema, yet uh, they do have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So I would get, uh, uh, you know, the, the alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, level and phenotype on her. And another thing I would get on her uh, is a neosinophil level, as it may uh, guide, uh, you know, treatment down the road. Now, sometimes this is already available in the chart, you know, because um, uh, CBCs with differential are frequently uh, ordered in the outpatient or inpatient setting for a var- variety of reasons, but something I would consider getting. Thanks so much, Wasim. Yeah, and I think really the the peripheral eosinophil account was is as as you mentioned, likely available, but really something that I started to notice over the last few years as being, you know, more useful as far as treatment for, for COPD. So I think that's an important thing to, to look at. And Bob, um, anything else you'd like to add for initial diagnostic approach or anything that you do slightly different than what Wasim's recommending? Yeah, well, I think the issue of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency screening is, um, uh, is a little nuanced, okay? The World Health Organization does recommend it in everyone with COPD if they have Northern European ancestry, okay? So it becomes a little difficult to know in exactly which patients we should really be um, uh, doing it. Uh, Also, the patients who are the best candidates for alpha-1 replacement are those that have uh, moderate Uh, abnormalities of lung function. So if someone has severe um, COPD, then you're not likely to put them on replacement therapy. And screening uh, might help with genetic counseling of the children, but usually those folks are so old, their children are already, um, uh, have had their children. So uh, it it, uh, it doesn't come up. So I, even though alpha-1 Screening is uh, very easy to do nowadays with a buckle swab or a finger stick. Uh, uh, I don't think it's for everybody, but it does require uh, a little bit of uh, judgment. Uh, I think Wasim is right about the uh, lung cancer uh, screening um, to get CT, and that can provide very uh, useful information because our COPD patients um, are at very high risk for developing uh, lung cancer, and particularly in someone like this who can uh, undergo resectional lung surgery, um, uh, they're they're really an ideal candidate. It gets to be a little, again, a little bit more nuanced in the patient with severe, uh, long-standing COPD who would not be a candidate for surgery, whether they should have regular screening or not, and and bears a discussion. Thanks so much, Bob. I think those are really important points for all of us to consider. And as far as our patient, right, I think we're all thinking we want to make sure she has the correct diagnosis of COPD. And what we know so far is that it seems to be consistent with that. She has a fixed airflow obstruction on PFTs. She has a significant tobacco history, greater than a 30-pack year history. Uh, she's been diagnosed in her late 50s, and she has um, symptoms, as we see mentioned, are important to think about chronic cough as well as dyspnea with exertion. You know, I know that we've discussed a lot of important data for her, and I think those that may be listening, you know, are now kind of wondering how do we put it all t- together to determine her COPD severity assessment or classification. 
And Wasim, I wanted to see if you could walk us through the criteria you use to determine severity um, in COPD for those of us listening today. Yeah, so uh, when we talk about severity, it's important to be specific uh, what we're talking about. For example, if we're looking at the FEV1, and this has already been covered by Bob, we are talking about the gold grade, you know, as one, two, three, or four, where, you know, an FEV1 greater than 80%, uh, greater than or equal to 80% is, you know, grade one, uh, 50 to 80% is grade two, 30 to 50% is grade three, and less than 30% is grade four. This is the grade. But um, in terms of uh, staging and the staging guides therapy, and I'm talking here about A, B, CD staging, you know, we use a different set of criteria, specifically uh, the burden of respiratory symptoms and the frequency of exacerbations. That's it, two criteria. And um, uh, you can uh, easily uh, obtain these criteria just from listening to the patient and talking to the patient in clinic. So um, as far as symptoms go, there are two commonly used scales to quantify these symptoms, the MMRC and the the CAT. So MMRC uh, stands for the Modified Medical Research Council uh, Dyspnea Scale. And uh, this scale ranges from uh, zero to four, with uh, zero being the best and four being the worst. And uh, just, you know, just to give you a, a sense of uh, uh, what the scale entails, for example, zero would be breathlessness only with strenuous exercise. One would be breathlessness when walking up a slight hill, such as the case with our patient who has who becomes breathless when walking up to her metro station. Uh, an MMRC score of two uh, would be uh, shortness of breath when uh Uh, walking on level ground, but uh, walking slower than other people of the same age on level ground. MRC grade of three would be uh, dyspnea after walking a few minutes on level ground for about for about 100 yards. And uh, MRC grade of four would be uh, too breathless to leave the house or to uh, dress, for example. So this scale regions from zero to four, with two or more being considered uh, clinically significant and indicating a higher burden of dyspnea. So this is for MMRC. Now for CAT, CAT stands for the COPD assessment test. And uh, as opposed to MMRC, CAT evaluates eight different uh, symptom domains, uh, not just uh, uh, dyspnea, but it also looks at uh, symptoms like cough, uh, mucus, chest tightness, limitations doing activities at home, confidence leaving the home despite of the lung condition, sleep quality, and energy level. So a total of eight symptom domains, each uh, each domain is scored on a, uh, a scale of zero to five, with zero being the best and five being the worst. And uh, the CAT can range from zero to 40, uh, with a score of 10 or more being considered uh, clinically significant and reflecting a higher burden of symptoms. Uh, so uh, using these criteria, you know, you can classify someone with COPD as being less symptomatic or more symptomatic. Uh, you can use either the MMRC or the CAT. Uh, they are easy to administer. I know the CAT is like eight questions, but uh, I, I administer it to all my patients, you know, uh, when I see them in clinic. And uh, it, it, it really takes uh, less than a minute uh, when uh, you, um, you know, go through it uh, question by question. So this is as far as symptoms are concerned. Now, um, the second question to ask is uh, exacerbations. And the the question is, uh, to ask the patient is, how many uh, exacerbations have you experienced during the past year where you need a treatment with antibiotics or steroids? Now, some some patients may not 
understand the word exacerbations. They may understand the word flare-up, or they may understand it uh, as a description of increase in their baseline shortness of breath, cough, or mucus production beyond their uh, normal, uh, you know, day-to-day variation. And uh, and uh, did they receive, you know, antibiotics or oral or IV steroids for this exacerbation? So the question is, how many of them have they had in the past year? And of these, how many have uh, led to a hospital admission specifically? Now, if they only had zero or one exacerbation in the past year, it would be a lower frequency of exacerbation. If they had uh, two or more or one or more in the past year, as long as this one specifically led to a hospital admission, this would count as a higher uh, frequency of exacerbation. And using symptom and exacerbation um, information, you can classify the patients into A, B, C, and D. Or, uh, gold staging. So gold A would be low symptoms, you know, low exacerbation. B would be high symptoms, low exacerbation. C would be low symptoms, high exacerbation. And D would be both high symptoms and high exacerbations. I mean, for our listeners, obviously, it would be easier if you look at it uh, as a schematic, such as the one produced by the gold guidelines. Yeah, and we'll definitely put that schematic up. It's a super helpful review, though, just really to get to the essence of it, you know, that symptoms and exacerbations are what we care about. And I, you know, the MMRC, I feel like to be fair, I'm probably not as good as you. I probably don't do a cat on all my COPD patients. And for our busy residents out there with the MMRC, I did basically just incorporate those landmarks into my dyspnea questions that I ask people. Like, are you too dyspneic to leave the house? Can you do go up a hill? And that way I sort of have an assessment of their dyspnea, you know, just from kind of a, a general interview with them. Yes, exactly. You can right away get a sense of where they fit on the MMRC scale just by asking them how, how their dyspnea affects their daily lives, you know. And if they say, I, I, I get uh, short of rest just with dressing, it's automatically a four. Uh, and and uh, you can you can determine that right away. So going back to our patient here, the patient said that she gets dyspnea when hurrying uphill to get to the metro station. So this would be an MMRC of uh, one. And so a lower burden of symptoms. And she had one exacerbation during the past year that specifically led to a hospital admission. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, a higher risk of exacerbation. So in that case, she fits within gold stage C. Thank you so much for walking us through that. Uh, Bob, I wanted to go to you for a follow-up question. You know, you made the really insightful point earlier that we care about the uh, gold grade, the level of FE1 uh, decrement in terms of thinking about people's prognosis and their overall mortality. However, that's not in the ABCD severity system, which we're going to talk about is what we use to sort of guide our initial management. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that and comment on why that's not incorporated. Yeah. So the reason is um, that it used to be incorporated, but it became very clear uh, after a number of years of uh, trying to develop the um, this complex uh, uh, staging system that physicians treat symptoms and they treat exacerbations. And all of the um, uh, research on clinical um, uh, treatment of COPD medications has been based on patients with symptoms uh, and exacerbation. So that's the reason for this ABCD uh, classification. I want to point out, however, that GOLD uses this classification for the initial 
grading or staging of COPD, and that after one has initiated therapy uh, and followed the patient, uh, this staging system may no longer apply to an individual patient. Oh, that's important for everybody to remember. That's great to know. Uh, and we're going to talk, I think I really like everything that both of you guys say, but Bob, I really like how you keep referencing the trials because it is important for us to remember that these are where these medications are sort of validated and where we're getting our evidence from. So I'd like to just throw another question to both of you as experts in the field. You know, we're talking about the symptom scores, we're talking about level of exacerbations, but are there other assessment tools, labs, things on imaging that you, questions you ask patient that you think are important to, to grade severity in your own mind beyond, you know, a little more nuanced than the ABCD. You know, I, things that some people talk about are um, Bode index, other comorbidities, maybe some biomarkers, but just anything that you guys think is important for our listeners to, to think about when they're evaluating these patients. Well, I think that one of the things, and perhaps uh, one of the most important things in our COPD patients uh, is to assess them for uh, and appropriately address comorbidities. Most of our COPD patients have comorbidities, uh, likely because of their smoking, uh, including coronary disease, heart failure. They uh, have a very high prevalence of depression and anxiety, uh, both of uh, which uh, contribute to worse uh, outcomes. Uh, so that's an important uh, thing to assess. You know, when I see a patient with COPD, rather than going through the full CAT score, although we have that uh, initially on the uh, electronic medical record, um, I use what um, uh, has been called the uh, SF2. I say, how are you doing and what are you doing? Okay, because you got to understand their symptoms, but also what their functional status is. And if you can establish those two things, you get a good picture of a patient with COPD in just a few minutes. I like that. It's keeping it simple. That's always the best. <laughs> Wasim, anything else to add? Yeah, I cannot uh, agree more with Bob about looking at the entire picture here, uh, uh, specifically as far as comorbidities are concerned, um, and um, including cardiac comorbidities. So uh, patients with COPD do have a high prevalence of coronary artery disease, of uh, both uh, systolic and diastolic heart failure, of pulmonary hypertension. Um, I mean, for example, if the DLCO seems uh, disproportionately low to um, uh, you know, the FEV1, for example, uh, it, uh, it could indicate the presence of uh, pulmonary hypertension and definitely worth ordering an echocardiogram in that case uh, to, um, to see how both the left and the right heart are functioning. Along with comorbidities, uh, sleep uh, disordered breathing or obstructive sleep apnea are also common in patients with COPD, and a sleep study can shed uh, uh, a lot of light into uh, what's going on to, uh, you know, their breathing and their sleeping patterns at night. And in terms of, uh, you know, more, more general assessments as far as uh, COPD is concerned, uh, I will uh, sometimes order some of the tests I, I mentioned earlier, specifically if someone has an FEV1 less than 50% per 
predicted, has evidence of hyperinflation and air trapping under long volumes and have a DLCO, typically less than 50% predicted. And let's say they are on uh, appropriate inhaler therapy, but still symptomatic despite, you know, adherence with this therapy and completing pulmonary rehabilitation. The question becomes, would they be candidate for more advanced uh, procedures such as uh, long volume reduction surgery or bronchoscopic long volume reduction? And in that case, uh, you know, I would order an inspiratory and expiratory chest CT to better understand both the distribution and extent of their emphysema and small airways disease. Uh, for people with an FEV1, uh, you know, less than 50% predicted and a lower DLCO, uh, again, I would consider uh, obtaining an, an ABG to see if they have uh, evidence of chronic hypercarbic respiratory failure, in which case uh, uh, chronic home non-invasive ventilation may be a good option for them as it has been associated with better outcomes in these patients. Thanks so much, Wasim. And um, just wanted to ask, I know that you've done some work kind of in biomarkers in COPD. Besides the the peripheral blood eosinophil count that you mentioned, um, are there any other things? I know some people some will bring up whether there's any utility of checking inflammatory markers or neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. I just wanted to get your thoughts on those tests. Yeah, I, I personally do not check these markers on a uh, regular basis. Now, I, I may look at them because, for example, a neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio may already be available from a CBC with differential. And a higher neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio you know, has been associated with uh, a higher risk of exacerbation, for example. But obviously, you you, you when you when you we interpret you know these uh, uh, cell counts it's it always has to be put in a certain context you know when were these drawn you know were they in the midst of an exacerbation or is it during the uh, uh, normal state if if if, if I'm looking uh, at those when they were uh, drawn historically before but I do not specifically uh, routinely check them or monitor them I think that's a really great point um, I think for for myself and for those listening you know it's really important to to remember the context of, of when they were drawn. Um, you can't necessarily look back and, and try to make an assumption based on today um, without knowing what the context was. So that was great. And a follow-up question, not related, but related with Seem, um, is how do you think some of the newer um, technological advances, such as remote digital monitoring, can be used in assessment to identify those individuals at risk of potential decline from COPD? Yeah, this is an, uh, currently an area of high interest and of um, very active research. And uh, there are a number of different uh, tools, you know, that have been looked at or are being assessed, you know, and they fall under the umbrella of remote digital monitoring, but they can mean different things. For example, mobile applications, asking patients to answer questions or to report symptoms, you know, have been tested. Uh, As far as physiologic monitoring, there are a number of devices, you know, that have been looked at that can uh, monitor uh, physiologic markers such as heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, cough frequency, even, uh, you know, uh, temperature, for example. Other devices that have been looked at are uh, electronic inhaler sensors, meaning uh, tracking how much, uh, how, or, yeah, how frequently a patient uses their uh, rescue inhaler, for example. And uh, these were pretty much looked at to try to see if we can catch an exacerbation early or predict an exacerbation. Now, these, uh, you know, have been t- tested in various studies, and they they have uh, their advantages and limitations. For example, the electronic inhaler sensor, it's not just the frequency of uh, uh, that it of which an inhaler is used, but it's also the pattern, right? Because there are some patients who use their rescue uh, inhaler every morning, 
you know. Uh, and it's, 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 it would be considered a rather higher frequency of inhaler use. But the question is, like, is there a new pattern, you know, a different pattern that, are, that is triggering their use uh, in a, uh, uh, you know, more frequent way or a uh, different way that is associated with subsequent COPD exacerbation. And uh, and obviously, this is also limited by patient adherence, you know, how, how much a patient would use the rescue inhaler, for example. Uh, as far as these other devices that uh, track physiologic parameters, you have to take into consideration how easy uh, they are to use, how acceptable they are to the patient, you know, because some of them, you know, are attached to the torso or are there as an armband or wristband, you know. And also, how how is this data collected? Where does the data go? Is it monitored live? You know, by a center at a central station. You know, and uh, would it alarm the patient to call their provider if uh, you know there is a physiologic parameter, for example, the respiratory rate above a certain threshold? And how would that change management? So uh, a very exciting area, but a lot of unanswered questions, and uh, not ready ready for a broad rollout. But uh, the future will tell. You know, what would be the best way to use such technology? It's really great to hear about the things that are coming down the pipeline. You know, while we're covering basics, but also, you know, you never want to ignore all these great you know, innovations that are coming. And, and I appreciate you also mentioning the advanced therapies. We're going to do a full episode on that. The, the endobronchial valves, LVRS, I think it's a really important component of care. So going back to our, our case and going back to basics for everybody, we had a great review of determining the severity now and all the tools that we can use. And now we're going to focus on sort of practical management of COPD. So Wasim already said this, but we're framing this patient as a 60-year-old woman with gold group C severity COPD uh, who is an active smoker. So Bob, wondering based on that assessment, uh, how you would approach her initial management? Yeah. So the initial management, according to the uh, gold guidelines, would consist of a, a single bronchodilator of the long-acting muscarinic antagonist class, the LAMAs. The reason um, that uh, this is the recommendation is that there are uh, at least two uh, large clinical trials that have shown that teotropium, which is the canonical uh, LAMA, is superior to uh, both indicatorol and selmeterol, both LABAs, in terms of reducing uh, exacerbation rates. And since this lady has little in the way of symptoms, we're looking for a treatment that will reduce and prevent exacerbations. One other thing I would say uh, about this category C, which is a relatively uncommon category uh, compared to categories B and D, which is where uh, we clinicians spend most of our time, is that there seems to be a very high prevalence of coronary artery disease and uh, cardiac death in these individuals. And so uh, uh, careful attention to, um, uh, to cardiac comorbidities would also be warranted uh, in this patient, regardless of, uh, uh, of other uh, symptomatology. There, uh, with any patient who newly presents with COPD, it's very important to consider the basic preventive elements. And in this lady, the number one uh, element which has flashing red lights is that she's a continuing smoker. Okay. And this is an all too common problem. Uh, I uh, don't know if you're going to do one of these episodes on smoking uh, cessation, but I, I want to emphasize to uh, our listeners that 
there have been in the last couple of years something of a sea change in our approach to smoking cessation with much greater reliance on uh, pharmacotherapy uh, adjuncts, particularly varenicline. Uh, there's been a downgrading, according to the ATS uh, uh, guidelines now, uh, on other adjuncts. But varenicline plus nicotine patches um, uh, is uh, considered uh, an appropriate treatment. And even giving varenicline to patients who are not ready to quit smoking. We used to try to move them uh, up the scale to have a readiness to quit and then um, prescribe varenicline. But now the, the guidance is to treat smoking as a chronic comorbidity and you treat it with medicine. I mean, you, you have to obviously uh, share this decision with the patient, but uh, much more aggressive with uh, uh, smoking cessation in that, uh, uh, in that way. The other preventive uh, um, measures that one would take, of course, are to make sure that the individual's up on their vaccinations, flu shots, COVID shots, uh, obviously, uh, and a pneumococcal vaccination. Um, in particular, our listeners should be aware of the new CDC guidelines for pneumococcal vaccination. There's been a whole uh, fleet of new um, uh, expanded uh, uh, dimension uh, pneumococcal vaccinations, and some of them make the full vaccination status as simple as receiving one shot. So I would ad advise people to uh, uh, update uh, themselves on that. Uh, and then finally, lifestyle changes, exercise, self-directed exercise, and uh, uh, we may get into it a little more later, but pulmonary rehabilitation is a vastly underused modality and would be very important for uh, for uh, someone like this who's presenting for the first time. Thanks for going over all that. And yeah, so obviously smoking cessation has got to be uh, top of the list for anyone who's still smoking and coming in with this. Um, I wanted to ask a follow-up about uh, some of those boxes in the gold criteria that allow the practitioner a little bit more choice. Uh, in the, You mentioned that we mostly are spending our time for group B and D. And for group B, the initial recommendation is for either a LAMA or a LABA. And I'm curious about how you make that decision and what you do in your practice. Yeah, so this is, again, a controversial area. And um, the debate is uh, not only between LABA versus LAMA, but also whether you should just start off with the combination as first-line uh, therapy. I think uh, most people, myself included, if we're starting with monotherapy, would use just a LAMA because that um, has a long-standing um, record of safety and efficacy. Uh, and although uh, lab monotherapy seems to be safe in patients with COPD, the idea of lab monotherapy is somewhat tainted by that uh, SMART trial, which showed an increased mortality rate in asthma with a uh, long-acting beta agonist. So, so that's tended to uh, make physicians uh, wary of LABA monotherapy in COPD as sort of an overhang from uh, the asthma experience. I think it's, it's also reasonable to uh, start a patient on a LABA-LAMA 
uh, as initial therapy. Uh, the idea being, or the argument being, that why use an inferior drug when you can use a better drug? Lab Lamas uh, have a great safety record. They are uh, uh, moderately more effective than either drug alone uh, in terms of bronchodilation, quality of life, and reduction of exacerbations. Uh, so, uh, so I think it would be reasonable depending on how often you would be seeing the patient and what their preference is to start on a combination therapy. Yeah. If, if one is good, two is better. No, not always, but I, but I totally, that's sort of the way I go with my patients as well now too, if I can get them feeling better quickly. Thanks, Bob. And I love that, um, that you're getting all the controversial um, questions and we're, we're saving them from Wasim. Uh, but Wasim, I want to spend a little bit of time, you know, talking about the, the box D that Bob alluded to, because it seems like there's even more options to consider, you know, including um, inhaled corticosteroids. And wanted to see, Wasim, what kind of general framework do you use when considering to start an inhaled corticosteroid or ICS for your patients with grade D severity? Do you ever start ICS monotherapy or do you always prescribe it as a combination therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to remind our listeners, uh, so grade D, uh, uh, gold uh, or stage, I should say gold stage D uh, refers to patients with a high burden of symptoms, you know, and uh, uh, a, a high frequency of exacerbations. So for gold stage D, uh, gold gives you options, either a LAMA, a LAMA and a LABA or a LABA and ICS. And uh, all these options are reasonable. But the way I think about it uh, is I look at the specific um, uh, situation that the patient is facing. For example, let's say they are very symptomatic, you know, uh, uh, not only having a CAT score greater than 10, but having a CAT score of 20 or more. Uh, I would uh, go straight to the LABA plus LAMA to uh, provide this uh, dual lung acting bronchodilation, you know, on uh, acting on the beta receptors, you know, uh, agonists on the beta receptor and uh, blocking the uh, miscarinic uh, receptors and providing that dual lung-acting bronchodilation, which would be particularly beneficial in these very symptomatic patients, again, CAT score of 20 or higher, or a severe exertional dyspnea, typically an MMRC score of 3 or 4. As far as ICS is concerned, I do not prescribe it as a monotherapy in COPD specifically. I uh, always prescribe it in, in combination uh, in uh, patients with gold stage D. And I specifically prescribe it for um, uh, two categories of patients. Patients with a high blood eosinophil count, typically defined as an eosin absolute eosinophil level of uh, 0.3, you know, or 300, depending on uh, the unit you're looking at, or patients with the asthma COPD overlap. Uh, because uh, uh, inhaled corticosteroids are first-line therapy in asthma, and if these patients have happen to have coexisting asthma on top of their COPD, NICS would definitely be in, be indicated there, you know, in conjunction with the LABA. So this is how I would think about it when I have someone. Uh, uh, with uh, COPD gold stage D and uh, really try to personalize the therapy I initially prescribe to uh, meet their needs and uh, their um, you know clinical situation. That's really helpful. And, and uh, to follow up on that, you know, Bob and Rasim, to, to comment 
I think a lot of patients, people uh, will get patients who are on triple therapy for COPD. You know, I think they, uh, through uh, hospitalization or primary care, they, they that's just what they're on now. And especially with Trelegy or the combined inhaler being out now, I think even more common. Um, so just hoping you could comment on, on the potential benefits of being on triple therapy, but also the pitfalls that everyone should be aware of. Yeah, so there's little question, I think, that uh, triple therapy um, in terms of exacerbations is uh, better than uh, either LABA-LAMA or ICS-LABA. However, in individual, uh, individual patients, the inhaled corticosteroid seems to add little those patients, as Wasim uh, suggested, are, and also cigarette smokers for a variety of reasons seem to be resistant to inhaled corticosteroids. Now, for most people, inhaled corticosteroids uh, are, um, are, are quite safe, okay? But there are certain situations where you might want to discontinue them uh, particularly in a patient who's not likely to benefit from them. And that would be in individuals who have repeated episodes of thrush and it can't be controlled with, um, with gargling and mouthwashing. Uh, in um, uh, individuals uh, who have had uh, pneumonia, uh, inhaled corticosteroids do lead to an uh, increase in pneumonia. Uh, often that's... Uh, small in terms of uh, the benefit in terms of uh, exacerbations, but still uh, I think it's prudent to uh, avoid it in uh, them to the extent you can in patients with recurrent episodes of pneumonia. Um, and then finally, um, there are symptoms that can be just bothersome to people, and that includes uh, atrophy of the vocal cords, chronic hoarseness, which can be distressing to some people, and also easy skin bruisability, which um, uh, is uh, uh, discomforting to, uh, uh, to many people. So those would be the reasons for discontinuing or not starting inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, this has been uh, enormously helpful. And I think the last topic that we're going to mainly touch on today is thinking about patients who are gold D, they're on their triple therapy now, um, and they're still having either significant symptoms or ongoing uh, exacerbations. You know, we're going to have another episode talking about sort of advanced therapies, but I know there are other medical therapies that come up uh, for these patients, specifically uh, standing chronic azithromycin or reflumalast. And I was hoping, uh, Bob, that you could talk us through when you determine a patient should get those. Uh, and Wasim, of course, anything to add would be helpful as well. Well, I think you can make the case that any patient who is hospitalized for a COPD exacerbation should be placed on uh, chronic azithromycin or reflumalast. We don't really know which of those two is superior. They seem to have very comparable benefits in terms of reducing exacerbations. Right now, there's an ongoing uh, study called the Reliance Trial that is uh, testing this hypothesis. So hopefully in a couple years, we'll know whether uh, azithromycin and reflumalast or reflumalast uh, 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 which one is better? Uh, obviously, the um, uh, the the advantages of uh, azithromycin is that it's easily it's readily available, it's inexpensive, uh, toxicity seems to be low, but it does uh, 
uh, increase the uh, the number of resistant uh, organisms. And um, antibiotic stewards would suggest that chronic antibiotic therapy should be avoided. Uh, Reflumolast, on the other hand, is not quite as well tolerated, but if you start with a low dose and uh, increase the dose after a few weeks of half-dose treatment, uh, uh, it seems to be very well tolerated. It's uh, considerably more expensive than azithromycin and, and consequently is not on uh, all patients' formularies, so, so that's a limitation. But I think either of those therapies uh, should be considered in patients who uh, have exacerbations. The other thing to think of in patients who've been hospitalized with exacerbations is to give them uh, what we call a rescue pack at home. Give them a prescription for uh, prednisone, 40 milligrams for five days, and a prescription for azithromycin or some other uh, similar antibiotic. Uh, And um, if they're the right patients, they can start it in the first day or two of an exacerbation. Uh, And uh, I always ask the patients to give us a call and let us know if they've started it so we can follow up with them. But that keeps people out of the hospital, which is one of our big goals these days. Uh, and we see one quick follow-up. The, the other thing that comes up sometimes, and there are some studies out there, so I've gotten questions from residents before about N-acetylcysteine uh, for COPD exacerbations or prevention. Is that anything that you use or I, I, or, or something that we sort of gone by the wayside? Yeah, you know, there is there is some um, data there supporting the use of N-acetylcysteine. It, I think it was one, uh, one study, you know, uh, some time ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that did show some benefit, although the benefit uh, was, uh, you know, rather mild uh, and uh, it, it didn't really gain traction. I, I, don't, I don't prescribe it on a regular basis, you know, but I think about it, keep it in my back pocket for, uh, you know, very select patients uh, here and there, but this is not something I routinely prescribe. Great. This has been such a fantastic last hour that we spent, t- spent together. And such great discussion and so many pearls that I know many will be re-listening to um, from both with Seam and Bob today. You know, I, I think after today, Dave and I, as well as our listeners, um, really can feel comfortable having a general framework using existing guidelines to approach the diagnosis and initial management in the patient we are seeing with COPD, as well as some practical advice from the both of you. Before we end, though, I'd like to leave our learners with some final takeaway points. Dave, what about you? What's one thing you want our learners to remember from our discussion today? Yeah, I have like too many. I could just repeat this whole hour, <laughs> but I have my, I think the big ones, I, I liked what Seam said, you know, 20% of people may have no smoking history or not a significant smoking history. And so to keep it on the differential and ask some other questions. And and then Bob was talking about things on the PFTs and especially the lung volumes. I like that correlation that with total lung capacity, we were really thinking about emphysema. And then for the RV or RV over TLC, we're thinking about the gas trapping and small airways disease. So I'm going to keep those pearls with me. Bob, what about you? Well, I I think the key things are First of all, the importance of spirometry in making the diagnosis of COPD. About 25% of the patients who are diagnosed and treated for COPD have perfectly normal lung function. We don't know what to do with those people. Some people call them gold zero. Some people call them a non-obstructive conic bronchitis. That's a common condition, so spirometry is really central. 
the other thing that I, I want to uh, emphasize is the importance of uh, either self-directed exercise or rehab. It's probably one of the most important things we can do uh, better than any medication in terms of improving quality of life, preventing hospitalization, and now, uh, according to Peter Lindauer's paper, reducing mortality in COPD. So it's a big deal, and it's probably the biggest gap we have in our treatment of uh, COPD patients. That's awesome. Thanks, Bob. And Wasim, what about you? One point you'd like learners to remember? Yeah, I, w- I would like to say the basics are really important when it comes to COPD diagnosis and management. You know, uh, the importance of spirometry for COPD diagnosis, as Bob was, was saying. But in terms of treatment, you know, uh, again, inhaler therapy is the backbone of COPD therapy, you know, and before thinking about advanced therapies, you know, such as azithromycin or oroflimulase or some interventional therapies or lung transplant, you know, you, you have to get the basics right. Because sometimes, you know, medications keep uh, getting added, you know, to patients, you know, whether it is in the context of hospitalizations or um, multiple outpatient visits. And and eventually these patients get referred for more advanced therapies. But when you sit down, you know, and uh, at, uh, try to understand what's happening with the patient, sometimes you um, find out that uh, the patient does not know how to use their inhaler because they were never taught or they uh, were uh, never on the uh, appropriate inhaler therapy given their, uh, you know, COPD severity. Or um, they have not been able to consistently afford their inhalers and therefore have not been able to adhere to them for that reason, you know, but then medications keep uh, uh, being added on and on. And therefore, it's important to go back to the basics, make sure you you have those uh, squared. And again, smoking cessation, pulmonary rehab, adequate inhaler therapy, and see how the patients fare on, on, on these initial therapies and then build from there. Yeah. And yeah, and Wasim, we may have to have you back on. I have this dream of having a video, uh, video Palm Peeps episode where we have like all the different inhalers and we just teach people how to use each of them because I feel like, you know, that inhaler technique is so important. Before we end today, you know, Monty and I are extremely excited uh, and honored to be having this partnership with the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly. And we know you both have played roles there and have been members of the CP Assembly. So we just wanted to have a, a minute or two where you could talk about just some memorable activities you've done there or activities going on that people get involved with, just so our listeners can learn a little bit more about it. Uh, you know, uh, one of my uh, favorite things to do is getting involved in the clinical problems assembly just to, you know, serve the mission of the assembly and the ATS as a whole. Uh, so uh, over the last uh, few years, I've been involved in the program committee, in the uh, apprenticeship committee, and in the journal club webinar committee. And uh, these are, have been great ways for me to, uh, you know, get involved in ATS, you know, work with other people, learn from other people. Uh, and it has been uh, a great experience. And and for our listeners, really quickly, the program committee is tasked with uh, reviewing uh, and rating abstracts for the conference and uh, uh, helping come up with sessions for the conference. Uh, the apprenticeship committee uh, uh, looks at applicants who are interested in um, join, eventually learning under a mentor and eventually joining the uh, program committee or the planning committee. And the apprenticeship committee is under the early career uh, working group, which I certainly encourage all uh, fellows and junior faculty to get involved involved in. 
And the Journal Club uh, Webinar Committee is, uh, you know, a group of us uh, leading a Journal Club webinar every, you know, three to four months, uh, uh, you know, within the Clinical Problems Assembly. It, it has all been great. It has all been very rewarding to me. And I just enjoy all the collaborations I get to have from these activities. Well, uh, Wasim really um, uh, has contributed so much, um, deserves the thanks of all of us who are on the um, clinical problems. Um, but uh, I think that the way that people can contribute a lot is simply by participation in the symposia and the scientific sessions. Uh, and that can occur at any level. Proposing a symposia is a great thing to do, particularly for young faculty. Uh, I still remember very well the, the very first uh, poster and first 10-minute talk that I gave at uh, the ATS International uh, Meeting. And uh, these are great things for our young trainees to participate in. So there's a lot to do. I think the, um, uh, the Clinical Problems Assembly is, is really the, the largest and, and really the heart of the ATS. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. And we, uh, we hope to continue these great discussions. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music was original music made by Eric Rogers. 